Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 61 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. This week I take a look at the impending swarming season and what we can do to work with the bees during this sometimes frantic period of the beekeeping year. Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. It's Easter weekend, so a very happy Easter to you all. Here in Norfolk, we're expecting temperatures to rise to nearly 20 degrees centigrade. That's around 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's definitely t-shirt weather and time to get some decent spring inspections carried out. We've been waiting patiently since late winter for our warmer weather to kick in and it's been a little up and down with only the odd day warming up before dropping back down to what in reality is actually closer to the more normal average temperatures for the time of year. With the rise in temperatures comes the inevitable start of the swarm season and it's something we can all work with to ensure for the most part we don't lose swarm after swarm from our hives and miss out on an early spring crop of honey. Today I'm going to take a look at the swarming process and look at the opportunities we beekeepers can take advantage of rather than viewing the coming weeks with dread and worry. For the beginner beekeeper, understanding the process of swarming and knowing the key features will allow you to gain control of the situation by knowing what's happening within the colony and how you can affect the outcome to best suit your beekeeping priorities. Now this may simply be that you don't want any swarms or increases, perhaps you have a couple of colonies already and that suits you very nicely. Alternatively, you might be looking to increase from a single colony that you purchased last year as a nucleus colony and you're looking to grow the number of colonies that you have this spring. Of course, for the more experienced beekeepers out there, you'll already have a good handle on what's likely to happen over the coming weeks and you'll obviously have a plan and all the equipment you need at hand and be prepared ready for one of our busiest periods of the beekeeping season. It doesn't do any harm to just recap on the various factors with swarming, so I hope all you seasoned pros out there will keep listening too. Who knows, I might say something that helps, or you might find yourself dropping me a message to tell me a better way of dealing with swarms. So swarming, let's deal with why it happens and what it is first of all. Most beekeepers know that a honeybee colony is made up of a queen, lots of workers and a handful of drones. And that's the usual standard version of a honeybee colony. Of course, there are always exceptions to this, but for the most part, we can assume that the vast majority of colonies are as I've just described. And remember, honeybees don't hibernate. The entire colony lives out the autumn and winter as a colony, unlike other bees and wasps who produce queens that mate and hibernate over winter, leaving the rest of the old colony to perish. It's why honeybees produce honey after all. Reproduction of individuals within the colony takes place by the egg-laying queen. She lays a fertilised egg for a female worker or an unfertilised egg for a male drone. Queens can also be replaced within the colony by a fertilised egg being deposited in a queen cell and fed royal jelly to then become a virgin queen. But what about colony-level reproduction? If all we have is reproduction within a colony there would be a forever diminishing number of honeybee colonies as various disasters strike the colonies such as predation, disease and climactic changes. Eventually, honeybees would become extinct. To guard against this demise, honeybee colonies use the process of swarming to reproduce at the colony level. 
and thus ensure the survival of the species as best they can. Obviously, we're doing our best to destroy the planet, but that's a discussion for another day. So we now know why honeybees swarm. It's a reproductive instinct, something that we can't stop at a biological level, so let's look at what happens. I don't intend to get too detailed in terms of the science behind swarming, but rather look at the basic signs beekeepers can spot that might indicate the swarming process has begun. And they're fairly straightforward. When a colony swarms, around half the population leaves the nest. It might happen to be in a beehive, or maybe it's in the hollow of a tree. Either way, it's the same process. So about half the colony leaves, taking with it the older, established queen and a mix of workers and drones. They exit the nest in a cloud of bees, apparently in disarray, flying in every which way before seemingly getting a signal to gather together, almost as if to check that everyone is with them. You could almost imagine a team leader bee with a clipboard ticking off names as if they were on some kind of school trip. From this point, they set off to settle into a new location and rebuild their colony from scratch. It's important to note that it's the old queen who leaves with the swarm. Again, there are occasions when this doesn't happen, but on the whole, it's the old queen that leaves with the swarm. If the colony hadn't made preparations before going, it could leave the remaining bees in the hive in danger of dying out, because their queen has just flown out of the door, leaving them behind with no egg-laying machine to continue on the good work. But of course, our bees are incredible little creatures, and everything is planned and accounted for. Here we have the most obvious sign that a colony is going to swarm. Queen cells. The pre-swarming colony of bees gets everything in order prior to leaving, so that what remains has the very best chance of survival, and for that to happen, the remaining colony will need a new queen. And a new queen comes from a queen cell, which we all know are vastly different to normal cells. So the swarm leaves behind a viable queen cell from which the virgin queen will emerge, fly out of the hive, mate, come back, and settle down as the new queen of the colony while the old queen has disappeared over the hedge with half the old colony looking to set up in a new location. So here we have colony level reproduction and this ensures the species can continue to survive by impacting on a number of survival factors such as location, gene pool, predation, disease and no doubt many other factors. Sometimes the first thing we know about it as beekeepers is when we carry out an inspection and there seem to be very few bees in the hive. There are no eggs visible, but there is a row of queen cells along the bottom edge of several frames in the brood box. Have you ever had that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach when you know you've missed a swarm? It happens to me every year. So don't be too hard on yourself, but just promise yourself it won't happen next year. It probably will, but let's move on. If as beekeepers we can't stop this reproductive drive, and I really don't think we should... How can we best manage it so at the very least we don't annoy the neighbours next door when one of our swarms settles on their bird table next to the barbecue? Let's consider some of the factors that fuel a swarm and see where we can intervene. Firstly, the timing of swarms is important and they start pretty early in the spring. So when you start your early season inspections, you should already be thinking these bees will surely want to swarm at some point. This fades as we get through to midsummer, although I have had swarms in September, so don't drop your guard. If you're already mindful of the fact that your bees are likely to try swarming, you won't be surprised if you start seeing queen cells popping up. Honeybee colonies need space to grow, and if you've had them shut down in a single brood box all winter, and have yet to add any additional room, they're going to get 
very cramped very quickly. As the new season brood emerges and fills the brood boxes, it's just going to cramp everything up. So this is another reason why they're likely to start thinking about swarming. Of course, the type of bee that you have might also have a predisposition to regular swarming, and no amount of space will prevent them from throwing up queen cells and heading off. The best you can do is keep watching for the signs and be proactive in managing your colonies. Perhaps requeening would be an option in this case. Let's turn our attention to the types of queen cells you might encounter. I've already mentioned swarm cells, but you might also encounter emergency queen cells and supersedure queen cells. Swarm cells are generally large, plump, dimpled cells, produced mainly in the brood nest area and are deliberately produced by the bees in preparation for swarming. They're produced when the colony believe it has the best possible chance of success and plenty of available resources are available, so they're packed with royal jelly and produce some of the best queens out there. Typically, you'll find them along the bottom edge of brood frames and up the side bars, but they can be found just about anywhere within the colony, and you'll probably find several of them, and in the case of prolific swarm colonies, you might find lots of queen cells. These queen cells are held away from the main comb area, and as such can be seen quite easily on most occasions. My personal best is 58 queen cells in one colony. I actually found 57, and they swarmed on the 58th, which was hidden from view in amongst some drone cells. Emergency queen cells are just that, produced by the colony in an emergency regardless of timing. If you remove a queen from a colony or accidentally kill a queen during an inspection, the colony will immediately produce emergency queen cells, and this is a situation that has been forced on them so they haven't chosen the best time or have specific queen cups prepared for queen cells. What tends to happen is the workers will use very young larvae in existing cells, and as a result, these emergency cells pop up all over the place in the brood nest, and they're partially held within the existing comb structure, so they can seem quite stunted and short, and can almost resemble a bent-over drone cell. There may also be a lack of food available for the colony to feed their queen larvae, and so you may also get smaller queens. This can also be a result of the fact that they've been forced to grow within a standard worker cell, so the poor things get a double hit of bad luck. Supersedure cells are produced by the colony when they want to replace their existing queen, but are not looking to swarm. These are very similar to swarm cells in structure and size, as the workers choose when and where to produce them. Generally, you may only find one or two supersedure cells, and again, generally, they tend to be built more in the centre of a frame, rather than the edge or the bottom. I had several supersedure cells built early in March in a couple of colonies. These were torn down by the bees as the weather became quite cold, so the bees will manage their processes and timings if they think it's not going to succeed. So now we know the difference between the different types of queen cells produced in a colony, what can we do to prevent or at least delay early swarms? Well, firstly, make sure the colony has enough room to grow and develop. Overwintered colonies will be exploding into life now, and restricting the amount of space they have is a sure way of developing swarming colonies. Adding supers of drawn comb, if you've got them, as well as a super of foundation, will give the bees somewhere to store nectar immediately, and also give them space to draw out more comb. If you're anywhere near oilseed rape, as I am, you might even want to give them more space, 
When oilseed rape nectar flows, it can be like a tap and the bees will fill up every last space with it. When you start your inspections, it might seem like a good idea to go through each frame and remove every single queen cell the bees have produced in an attempt to prevent swarming. But in doing this, you could be depriving the colony of the only chance they have of reproducing a new queen. If the colony has already swarmed and there are no more young larvae or eggs, you might just have destroyed the very thing you need. So at those first few inspections, make sure you're seeing eggs and very young larvae before you go through and destroy queen cells. Remember, the bees may be producing a supersedure cell because their old queen is failing, and if you destroy every queen cell without thinking about what you're seeing first, you could doom that colony and end up having to buy in a replacement queen, and that can be expensive. I mentioned my three strikes rule last week. It's a useful reminder for colonies that continue to throw up swarm cells. When a colony starts to get into the swarming mood, you might find simply removing the queen cells that have been produced has the effect of removing the desire that that colony has to swarm, and they don't produce any more swarm cells in the following weeks. To be honest, I don't think I've had that happen very often, and the next week there always seems to be more swarm cells. I remove the swarm cells for a second week in succession, and quite often this does do the trick, and they settle down again, but if they continue to produce swarm cells into the third week, then I take the stance that they just want to swarm, and I'd better do something about it. Normally, what this means is I split the colony so they can't swarm. It doesn't have to be a 50-50 split. You can easily retain honey production at the same time as splitting. I really like the two nukes from one parent colony method, and I'm sure I'll be using this method over the next few weeks. Check out my video on YouTube if you're unfamiliar with the technique, or you need a quick refresher before the season really gets going. Remember, where swarming is concerned, the colony consists of three important parts. Firstly, the queen. Secondly, the brood. And thirdly, the flying bees. And if you split two of these from the third, the colony can't swarm. So let me explain. The swarming colony needs both the queen and the flying bees to be able to swarm. Removing the queen immediately prevents swarming from happening. As with a lot of things in beekeeping, it's not always that simple, because if you have more than one capped queen cell in the colony, there's a risk they'll swarm with a virgin queen. However, it works well. You simply remove the old queen, leave one queen cell, allow her to emerge and mate, and the colony settles back down as if nothing had happened. Be warned, though, if you miss just one additional queen cell, or you choose to leave two queen cells, there's a strong likelihood that they may swarm. If you remove all the flying bees from a colony, there won't be any flying bees for the queen to swarm with. That's the same as saying remove the queen and all the brood from the flying bees. Now I'm not suggesting you catch every flying bee that comes out of the hive with a net. It would take too long and really annoy the bees. But if you move the hive to another part of the apiary and replace the old hive with another replacement hive or a nuke box, all the flying bees will fly out of the old hive and return to the position they thought they were in namely the old position. Hey presto, all the flying bees have been removed from the old colony. Again, there's a risk that over the next few days, new flying bees will orientate themselves to the new position and you could lose a swarm again, so be vigilant. In each case here, we've removed one part of the equation, namely the queen or the flying bees. A better way would be to remove the brood and leave the queen and the flying bees, and we call that an artificial swarm. 
by moving the hive to another location in the apiary, but also finding the queen and putting her back in the new hive, where all the flying bees are going to return to, you're effectively removing the brood from the queen and the flying bees. Of course, all these methods require additional work and a sequence of actions to be successful, and I'll go through some of these in the coming weeks. If you're lucky enough to have an out apiary site, you could simply remove the old queen and a couple of frames of brood and food, seal them up and move them out, letting them settle into the new apiary, ready to start over building new colony. If you happen to be looking to set up more colonies, you could use queen cell production in this swarm phase to really good effect and create multiple nukes from one colony. I really like the BS Honey 2-in-1 nuke for this. You can split a full-size national hive down into a frame of brood, a frame of food, and an empty frame of either drawn comb or foundation, and get as many mating nukes created as you have queen cells. And don't forget, you can cut out a queen cell from one frame and place it in another, so you could create 11 or 12 one-frame nukes with drawn comb filling in the spare gaps. I often raid other healthy colonies and take a single frame of emerging brood, shaken clean of any additional bees, and place these in with the nukes to give them a burst of new workers to assist with the new colony that I've just created. These mini-colonies will take a while to get going, so don't expect miracles from them, and remember, the queen cell has a difficult path to becoming a successfully mated queen, so you might find yourself uniting colonies or adding new queen cells to them to have a second or third attempt at raising a queen in that nuke. So you can see, swarming is a natural process that we should embrace for both the bees and the beekeeper's benefit. There are many different ways you can manage swarming to simply maintain the number of colonies that you have or to boost the colony numbers quickly and effectively. And whatever route you choose this season, I wish you the very best of luck. I'll no doubt revisit this topic as we get cracking with our own bees over the coming weeks. Don't forget to check out my videos for the very latest of this season's exploits, and I'll be posting at least three videos each week to our Patreon page right through the active season, and that kicks off this weekend, judging by the forecast. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast. I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping short and sweet. <laughs>